All right, so tonight we have uh, Father Wallmeyer. Uh, he's going to be teaching on Hebrews 10, and, but I'll be starting us off with Hebrews 9. Hopefully you had a nice week last week with Father Wallmeyer. Hopefully he taught you something. Yeah, let's have a test, right? Yeah. the first verse. Yeah. Not a test. I'm a poor tester. All right. Should we start with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, come, fill our hearts, fill this room, guide our study, enlighten our minds, better understand your truth, and inflame our hearts with love. And we entrust this class for Mother Mary. Hail Mary. Full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We have a newcomer, Marielle, uh, to the study. Any, everybody else has been here, All right? All right. So, uh, getting into uh, Hebrews, here's just an overview. So Hebrews nine really fits in with Hebrews eight, which you covered last week. Uh, it forms. It's called a chiastic structure. It's like a pyramid where the beginning and the end mirror each other, and then each part in between mirror each other. So Hebrews 8 started off talking about the earthly sanctuary and its liturgy, um, how worship was done in the, in the tabernacle. And then it moved to talk about the first covenant. I don't know if Father Walmeyer made it that far. It's all the way to verse 7. Yeah. It was and, a struggle. <laughs> I think that was the last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, Chapter 9, we'll start off talking about the worship in the Old Covenant. And then it's going to switch to talk about the worship in the New Covenant, the worship offered by Jesus. And then it'll switch to talk about the New Covenant, how it compares with the First Covenant. Because in Hebrews 8, he talks about the First Covenant and how it wasn't that great. And how Jeremiah talks about a New Covenant that was to come, where God would write his law in our hearts. And... It would, everything would just be made new. So he's going to talk about the new covenant and then finish off the chapter talking about the heavenly sanctuary and its liturgy. So it's going to, so each element of this, you know, he's setting it up to compare what Jesus does with what came before. All right, to get the gist of what Jesus does and how it compares with what came before, we really have to... Um, uh, just love the temple and the tabernacle and kind of get the this big theme that spreads throughout scripture, the theme of the temple and the new creation to, to really get a glimpse of what he's doing here. Uh, so at the risk of repeating, because I know some of this is repetition, um, but the I'm just going to do a quick overview of the theme of temple in in scripture. So scripture starts and ends with the temple, which is really interesting. So Genesis 1 and 2 describes creation. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it describes creation as a temple, uh, especially um, Eden uh, and the garden within Eden is the Holy of Holies. And Adam and Eve are created as priests to serve in the Holy of Holies. And scripture ends. Oh, this is really cool. I know besides Leviticus, Revelation is your second favorite book in the Bible. Very clear cut, very easy to understand. Uh, but it, 
in Revelation 21, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. We won't spend a long time. And John receives this really confusing vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then in verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then, verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So he has this, this one vision, but it's really threefold. He got the new heaven and new earth, so this new creation. He got this new holy city, the new Jerusalem, this temple city, which is the dwelling place of God. So these three things... I mean, they're kind of distinct, but they're really wrapped up together. New creation and temple, where God will dwell with his people. Then he goes on to describe the city, and he says in verse 16, the city lies foursquare, its length, the same as its width. It's kind of an odd detail, so it's a it's cube. It's a cubic city. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Then later in verse 21, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I don't know about you, but this does not sound like a nice city to live in. It wouldn't be very comfortable. But what he's doing is, so the new creation, this new Jerusalem, this new temple, it's the new holy of holies. The Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, was laden with gold and jewels. And what it's saying, what he's saying is the new temple, the new creation, will all be the Holy of Holies. What does that mean? Those in the new creation will all be in the Holy of Holies, which was the place where only the high priest could go once a year to be in the presence of God. So creation was made as a temple, and it's going to, God is doing all that he does throughout Scripture leading up to the new creation, which will be this new temple. Uh, And then in between, we have the tabernacle in the wilderness. After they leave Egypt, God commands them to make a tabernacle. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he sees a vision, kind of like John. He sees a vision of the heavenly sanctuary, and he is commanded to make a copy of it. And the copy he's commanded to make of the heavenly sanctuary is the tent in the desert and then later with king solomon he builds the temple which is the permanent tabernacle it's pretty much the same thing as the tabernacle it's just made out of stone instead of tents now there are three things i wanted to talk about with the temple for our purposes with hebrews first the tabernacle and the temple they i've talked about before how they're supposed to be kind of like a recreation of eden and also a recreation of Mount Sinai. They're also the entire cosmos in miniature. So um, the uh, huh, there's a lot of details here. But the, the outer court, so over here, The outer court had a wash basin filled with water, obviously, wash basin, and then an altar. The wash basin is described later in scripture as the sea, and the altar is described in earthen, earthen ways. It has a, a foundation, like the earth has a foundation. Um, it's cut from stone. Four corners. four corners for the four corners of the earth, so it's representative of the earth. 
so the outer courts is kind of the, the land where everybody dwells. And then you go inside the holy place, which is that larger tent structure. And that, uh, you go in here, and this represents the visible heavens, the sky with the stars. Uh, one thing, I mean, there's jewels in here to represent the stars. There's also the, the lamp. And in Genesis 1, when God created the earth, uh, God created the lights. Uh, the only time that word appears in scripture is uh, with the lamp in the tabernacle. So the two are intertwined there. So, the, so here's the, the broader earth and then the, the sky and the stars and then the Holy of Holies is the invisible heavens where God dwells. So inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top. I can't sit in my chair. With the cherubim on top and then um, God was seated on top of uh, I mean, you can't see him, clearly, but he's seated on top of the cherubim, and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. All right. So this, this is very strange for us. We don't think of the world this way. We don't think of tents and lamps this way. Uh, but for some reason, in God's wisdom, he had them create this tabernacle which represented among other things that represented the whole earth. Another cool thing, the high priest, when he would go into the tabernacle, especially on the Day of Atonement, he would wear the priestly garb, which he could only wear in the tabernacle, and the garb he would wear would also represent the earth, and it would represent the tabernacle. It's like he put the tabernacle on top of himself. Uh, so the outer, the lowest, outermost garments that he would wear, they had pomegranates and flowers embroidered into them to represent the earth. Then he had this bluish uh, garment um, with jewels, right, on it to represent the stars. And then he had a square breastplate uh, with jewels on it to represent, made out of gold to represent the Holy of Holies. And then he had God's name on his forehead. Um, so it's each, each part of his clothing that he would wear would, would correspond to a part of the tabernacle. So he would tabernacle himself in order to go into the tabernacle, which is kind of cool because Jesus, in John 1, it says, and he tabernacled among us. He took on creation, just like the high priest would take on creation in order to go into the temple to present it to God. Jesus takes on creation by taking on our flesh. Oh, there's a lot of cool things about that. Yeah, yeah, add on. And, and, and then the, the vestment that a priest puts on over himself is called a chasuble, which also takes its meaning somehow from tent. Like it means tent huh. when you when, when you put on that little tent thing, you know. It's That's like a big cool. puffy garment. So priests, I always thought yeah. about that too. I tabernacle. You tabernacle yourself. I, I tabernacle. <laughs> I, I like the use of that 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 verb. That verb. Yeah. You know, so there isn't really a whole lot of difference as compared to the tabernacle or the tent. It must have been just beautiful, which is what we try to make our churches now. Yes. More beautiful to draw us into worship. Yep, yep. So there's going to be a lot of parallels between, okay. especially classical church architecture and, mm -hmm. and this. But there's going to be a major shift with Jesus, which we'll yeah. talk about. Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
So the tabernacle and the temple represented the whole cosmos. And then the goal was for Adam and Eve originally to expand the temple. They were, to, they were supposed to subdue the rest of creation to expand the, the garden, and especially the, well, I mean, especially the garden, but Eden expanded out. Of course, they fail. They don't do it. So God kind of restarts the project with the patriarchs. And you notice with all of them, like Abraham and Jacob, they, they travel around. And when they travel, they would build an altar and call on God's name and worship there. They're expanding the temple. He uh, later entrusts it to the whole people of Israel, but they fail. He makes them a kingdom of priests, a holy people, to expand his temple, which another way to say it is to expand God's presence in creation, allow people to come into contact with God. They don't do it. So um, then Jesus comes, and Jesus announces himself as the temple. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. He's expanding. He uh, forgives sins. Forgiveness of sins was associated with the temple. That's the place for offerings of sin, offerings for sins. And so Jesus is the new temple in person. Okay, so expanding the temple. And then the last thing is the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement, uh, I talked about it before. It's when the, the high priest once a year would... I'm talking too fast. I've lost my breath. He, he would bring some animals and he would sacrifice a few of them, bring their blood into various parts of the tabernacle structure and later the temple, and spread the blood on the mercy seat, and that would cleanse the um, Holy of Holies. And then he would spread the, the blood around the altar, and then uh, so it, it would cleanse the whole tabernacle, it would cleanse the people, and then the scapegoat thing. Um, but the blood is going to be really important for what he talks about with Jesus. There's something I'm forgetting about the Day of Atonement. All right. I'll remember in a minute. So Jesus comes, and this is really cool. I think this is the most fascinating passage in all of Scripture. It's in Mark. And, oh, before I talk about the fascinating part in Scripture, or the fascinating verse I have in mind, Uh, so for the Jewish mind, the temple, the tabernacle, creation, they were all intertwined, uh, where the, the tabernacle is a re, like a creation in miniature. Um, it's, yeah, so they're intertwined. We see this also in the early Christian mind in Jesus' teaching, which makes his teachings about like the end of the world a little bit confusing. So if you turn to Mark 13, sorry, I didn't tell you, Mark, the chapter. So in Mark 13, if you've read it lately, uh, it's very confusing. So Jesus, at the very beginning, he, he comes out of the temple, and one of his disciples says, hey, look at that temple, isn't it amazing? And Jesus says, do you see this? There will not be here, left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, so he's talking about the temple. Then, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is verse 3, opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? These things referring to the destruction of the temple. And then Jesus starts ta talking about rumors of wars, and people will come in my name, leading you astray, etc., etc. 
people misread this to think he's talking about the end of the world, but he's talking about the end of the temple, the temple being destroyed. But later, in verse 24, he switches to talking about his second coming, when he's going to come again, and when he's going to come again is the end of the world. And then he switches back in 28 to talk about the destruction of the temple, and then he switches back later on to talk about his second coming. So the whole point of all this here, Rosie's looking at me like you lost me. So the, the point is, Jesus, the end of the temple and the end of the world, the end of creation, are really intertwined with each other, which is very foreign to us. We're like, there hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years. I don't miss it. You know, it was never part of our life, but they're, they're intertwined. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, I mean, that's, that is a huge cosmic consequences to it. All right, so with that in mind, turn to Mark 15. 15, yeah, 1-5. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just skip down to the end of the crucifixion account. So verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Woo! This is is mind-blowing. So in the whole Gospel of Mark, nobody has recognized who Jesus is. Nobody, Nobody has been able to see him. Even his closest apostles, they keep getting it wrong. Peter was the closest. He said, you're the Christ. But then he quickly showed how much he didn't understand about what it meant to be the Christ. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So nobody has been able to recognize Jesus because nobody can, nobody can really see him. Until he's crucified. And when he's crucified, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The temple of the curtain, now there's a couple curtains, but arguably it's referring to the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So the Holy of Holies is where God dwelled. Only the high priest could go in once a year. What this is saying, through Jesus' death, this curtain is torn. So now God's presence isn't just in the Holy of Holies, it's let loose. It's set free. It's expanded. The temple is expanded. The Holy of Holies is expanded. We're getting into this, where all of creation is going to be one giant Holy of Holies. And who's the first person invited into the Holy of Holies to see God? The centurion. Of all people, it's this Roman centurion who has no business in the temple, but he's invited into the Holy of Holies to see God seated on top of his mercy seat of the cross. It's not just... And, oh, this is one more nugget from Mark. And then, I promise, we'll get back to Hebrews. So it says, the curtain was torn in two. The only other place where that word occurs in Mark's gospel is at the very beginning, in chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism. Verse 10, when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
So the heavens were torn open at his baptism. The temple is torn open at his crucifixion. There's this intertwining of, the, of creation and the temple. So Jesus' death is bringing in this new creation. Creation's been torn, torn open. This new creation is coming. We, we don't see it to the full yet. We still have to wait for, we have to wait for that. But it's already started. So we as Christians, we're not people, you know, we're not just like normal people waiting for something far in the distance. We're already new creation people. We're already living in the Holy of Holies if we remain faithful, waiting for God to finish his work of expanding that Holy of Holies to take up all of creation. But we're already in there. We're like the centurion. We're already in that Holy of Holies, gazing on God directly. All right. Doesn't that just get you excited for Hebrews? That's why I was looking at the question. You get so pumped up, and I'm trying to write, and you remember what you're saying? And, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tone it down. No, that's okay. I love it. <laughs> Monotone from here on out. All right. So, uh, Hebrews 9. I, I don't want to talk a whole lot because I want to leave plenty of time for Father Walmeyer for chapter 10. Um, that wasn't a dig. <laughs> that, was, that was just, I want to make sure you have, you have time. I don't want to take the whole night. <laughs> so um, he's going to start by talking about worship in the, in the old covenant, the the especially the day of atonement that's going to be his focus so does somebody want to start reading one through five all right so that's the the liturgy the tent service of the the old covenant so he starts by explaining what's in the various parts of the tabernacle it's interesting he doesn't talk about the temple even though the temple's been around for a long time at this point. It's probably still standing when Hebrews is written, but he's talking about the tabernacle. But everything that you say about the tabernacle applies to the temple. Um, then... The gold is only in the Holy of Holies, is that right? Uh, I'm sorry? The gold was basically just in the Holy of Holies? That's where the largest concentration of gold would be, okay. but there would also be like the menorah had gold i think the table of the bread of the presence okay uh i don't know i'm fuzzy on those details because everything outside the tent was bronze okay so and there's silver at the entrail and then gold okay so when you go to the olympics you know that threefold progression you know the biblical ah that's funny it's biblical progression through like to the more precious yeah yeah Go into the Holy of Holies. No, yeah, don't tell anyone. Because in the Olympics we'll get some other medal we have. Yeah. And then I just wanted to point out, um, he says something kind of odd. So in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. So this ties back to the whole, the intertwining of creation and the cosmos with the tabernacle. Um, 
So when, when the new covenant comes, and what Jesus does on the cross is to, yeah, I mean, he tears the cosmos. He, he's doing away with the old creation and he's initiating this new creation. So another way to say that the only way into God's presence was for Jesus to come and kind of, I don't know, remake, remake things. All right, any thoughts, questions, ponderings, deep insights on those verses? So did the Jewish, I guess my thought is, so the Jewish people, did they understand this, or was he writing to just priests? Oh, uh, you mean the author of Hebrews? Yeah. He... Yeah. I don't know. I'm just asking that question. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think of how knowledgeable most Catholics are. Like, if somebody wrote a detailed theological treatise referring to a lot of Catholic practices, would most Catholics understand what's going on? So, I, I don't know. He does take a lot for granted that people would, would, would know. Yeah. Uh, presumably, they're all former, or at least majority would be former Jews who probably uh, most like you know grew up going to the tab- to the temple at least yearly for or for the major feasts but yeah you're right he does he does assume a lot yeah, yeah. what confuses me is when they traveled in the desert that's where the tent was yeah the tavern but they had to move it. Yeah. Because they traveled. Yeah. So if only the high priest is allowed in there, who takes everything down, packs it up oh, to yeah. travel? So uh, there are there were detailed instructions yeah, for realize, how to do that. I realize only, that, but that, that yeah. boggles my mind. Don't go there. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. That really boggles but my mind. How that's for in that. the fall. We'll talk about the, okay, the Pentateuch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of details. Different orders of priests that are allowed to touch different things. Yeah. The 10% of the Jews that do everything. Oh. 10% oh, no. and 10% of the work. Is that how it is? Also. All right. Yeah. So I was in a different diocese over the weekend and went to Mass. Beats me. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the tabernacle I've been to has a curtain in it. That's what know. the door's for. There you go. I never noticed that ours didn't have a curtain. One in the little chapel has a curtain. Oh. Yeah. So I guess that I've never seen that one curtain. Oh, yeah, like dividing the curtain. Yeah. And every time the Eucharist, like, comes out to us, it's, it's like that same moment, right, where the veil is parted and... Mm. And God's presence shoots out from the tabernacle to us, you know. Like that's that's like another thing. It's like if we're all priests, we should all go up to the sanctuary, right? And it's like kind of missing the point that like God has come down from the sanctuary, and comes to us. Yeah. So the Eucharist comes down to us. You know? So we don't all have to storm the sanctuary. And get, get, get in my space. You know? <laughs> okay. Well, like, Jesus comes down to us. Yeah. Breaks through to us. 
But things have changed because oh, yeah. of Jesus. Hey, they didn't dance in the temple. They they dance on the way to the temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was on the way too. That wasn't in church. Yeah, we don't treat it disrespect. All right. Should we continue? All right. Somebody want to read verse eleven through fourteen? We probably don't have time to read the rest of the chapter, but th- we can read this section and then just skim over. Great. Awesome. So he's comparing the worship offered by Jesus with the high priest and, oh, wait, was that the, yeah. So during the uh, Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood, and what that would do is purify the tabernacle and purify the people and atone for their sins. So the atonement of sins we often think about, but also the purification of the tabernacle was a big deal because it meant that the people could then come into God's presence and actually be in God's presence. So what, he, what he's talking about here is not simply that Jesus atoned for our sins, which is, which is great and beautiful, but he also purified us and he purified creation, or at least he's ushering in this new purified creation, which means we can now come into God's presence. We can enter the church. We can be near the tabernacle. We can receive the Eucharist because we're we're a purified people. And he does this with not not the blood of goats, but his own blood that he shed on the cross. And then just uh, pull out some nuggets and then I'll hand it over to Father Walmeyer because chapter 10 really draws out a lot of the same themes. It's not like we're skipping stuff. Um, just looking at chapter 9, um, I circled all the time or underlined every time blood was mentioned and it kind of pops off the page. So chapter 9 really focuses on on blood. Blood blood as a means to purify and blood as a means to like bring life and, and allow people to come into the presence of God. Then, uh, so in this next section verse 15 through 22 um he's going to talk about the um the new covenant that jesus ushers in with his with his blood so the old the old covenant um especially focused on moses so he goes up on mount sinai after the people are led out of egypt and he receives the terms of the covenant from God, and the people say, yeah, we'll do it, and then he sprinkles blood on them. And what that signifies is if they're unfaithful to the covenant, then they should die as terms of the covenant. They're unfaithful to the covenant, but God doesn't smite them all. 
so somebody still needs to bear the curse of the covenant. And this is what Jesus does by offering his blood, by offering his life on behalf of the people. He takes on the covenant curses, um, which allows the old covenant to uh, not go away, like uh, that's done and over with, but allows us to have a new covenant. All right. And then he finishes off with the heavenly sanctuary in its liturgy uh, that Christ purifies not just an earthly tent, um, which was very important, uh, but he purifies the whole cosmos by what he did. He purifies what the tent just represented, but he's the real deal. All right. That takes us through chapter nine. Speed round. Dead works. So the tradition would understand um, uh, works not enlivened by faith and charity as being dead. Uh, so somebody can do good things, but out of selfish motives or self-serving motives. Did you? Were you asking because you saw that tie into chapter nine, or? Ah, purify our conscience from dead works. That's a good question. I always skimmed over dead works. Well, yeah, I don't know. You guys have thoughts? No. Well, there does. <laughs> I don't know, I just imagine all, all of the sacrifices that they were just talking about also involving death. Oh, you know, yeah. Versus the living work. Blood of goats. The, the living work. Um, the one living work of Jesus, you know, who, whose death, you know, ends death. And, be, and, you know, whose life lives forever. So maybe contrasting a little bit with the literal works of death, you know. But all the sacrifices yeah. of the old covenant. It's like a pun almost with like they're dead. They can't do anything. They, they don't affect anything because they're dead. But then also they, they involve a lot of death <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> so almost a pun, uh, dead works, right? Of course, if we want to talk Reformation and Protestants, we should like open up. Yeah. But that's, that's like where, a later consideration. That's, that's 1,500 yeah. years later, you know? That's not necessarily where Hebrews is sitting, you know. Yeah. You mean my answer didn't make a lot of sense? Did you give me an answer? The refusal of an answer. 